tonight on 80s All Over, Patreon exclusive interview with the writer of 48 Hours, Commando, and Die Hard, Steven E. D'Souza. And now, your hosts, Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg. Yeah, all right, you know what? Let's do this. Let's do this. Um, Give me the scoop on, like, what was the uh, inciting factor? What what made you decide to just eschew a more safe profession and and decide to risk it as a screenwriter, filmmaker? If you ask, when I was a kid, if you ask me what I wanted to do when I grew up, I was... I was one of these kids, five, six years old. I was making my own comic books and stapling them together. And, and I remember distinctly saying, I, you know, what, as soon as I must have seen one of the first episodes of, uh, of the Disneyland TV show where they explained how they made animated cartoons, I said, that's what I wanted to do when I made my own flip books and stuff. Um, so, uh, and then I was one of the first kids, I guess, not one of the first, but uh, making movie, home movies with, like, you know, eight millimeter movie camera. I uh, made a film when I was, I guess, in, uh, I'm trying to think, maybe 10th grade or something, uh, called Cold Finger. You can guess the, you know, the premise of parody of James Bond. And I entered it in a national contest and won a prize. So I had that bug really early. And in fact, um, I was always a, uh, a very creative kid. And, uh, a, a, uh, I think if you follow my Twitter feed, I recently put up uh, some illustrations I did. This also was in high school. I had a teacher assign us a, a uh, and this must have been ninth grade, the teacher assigned us, uh, the uh, said, write and illustrate your version of a fairy tale. So I did my version of Goldilocks and the Three Bears, and they called my parents in and had the school psychiatrist come in. Uh, oh. <laughs> if you go on my Twitter feed, you can see the illustrations. I basically, uh. it, it was like a uh, neo-noir, Mike Hammer, uh, a thing where uh, Goldilocks was like the client, but she was like a, do- a lying bimbo for the private detective, and it was the bear crime family. Uh, your papa, <laughs> papa, mom, and baby bear that was their crime, you know, nicknames. Their um, hitman was uh, Humpty, a Dumpty. The go on my Twitter feed of recently, they had the illustrations there. All right, uh, definitely. When I was in my senior year of high school, I sold a, a uh, an article to uh, Rogue, which is a men's magazine, uh, which uh, at that time was trying to be like Esquire. It was uh, it later on declined and went into uh, became kind of crummy. Uh, but uh, so I brought that to school and I'm showing it to my friends. And uh, job teacher says, "What are you doing back there? Bring that doc." Oh well, Mister Souza, we don't think much of pornography here at Neshaminy High School. So again, they call the. Um, uh, uh, the uh, guidance counselor in, and I'm up there. Mike, we got we we left a message for your father, and I go, listen, I didn't bring it for the pictures. Oh, everybody says that. Like, no, I have an article in there. It's behind the centerfold, and the guidance counselor goes, son of a bitch, that's your name. What are they paying <laughs> something like that? And so all of a sudden, my suspension was forgotten. At the end of the day, they go in the PA announcement, and they go, uh, you know, uh, all right, uh, pet squads meeting in uh, room three. Uh, the soccer field is being reseeded, and congratulations to one of our seniors who was published in uh, who was published. <laughs> uh, it's, it's so it went from uh, pornography to art in in but, five minutes. But my favorite story was, I guess it was in like uh, seventh grade. Uh, I had an English teacher who uh, told us to write a story, write write up our own story. So I wrote like a science fiction story 
So uh, he says, he's, he's saying, okay, you're pasting the papers out. Uh, Mr. Souza, come up in the front of the room. So I figure he's going to say, this is the best story here, whatever he says. I want you to tell everybody here where you copied your story from before I take you to the principal. And I go, what do you mean? He says, I know you copied your story from a magazine. I go, no, I didn't. Uh, 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 I made that story up. He said, I'll give you one more chance to tell the truth. I said, I wrote that story. He says, okay, that's it. He takes you to the principal's office. And meanwhile, he has the janitor unlock my, my, my locker, and I had a science fiction magazine. So now they have him in the office, and he says, he copied it out of this magazine. Uh, and I go, I wrote the story myself. Uh, and uh, if he says I copied that magazine, he's, he's lying because he just got it out of my locker. So this guy was adamant in this. My parents came in, and they said, he's a creative kid. He always does this stuff. So this guy hammered me the whole year. He flaunted me in English. I, I, you know, like my parents were, I guess, too disconnected to realize you don't flunk a kid's grade for, for a bad attitude, you know. Um, meanwhile, on my on my SATs, I had a uh, uh, 790 on my English, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, but meanwhile, so anyway, years later, after I had already come to Hollywood and I was already, uh, I guess, doing the $6 million man, uh, I came back to visit my parents. Uh, and, they, and my mother says, listen, go out to the deli and, you know, get these following items. So I go to the deli and the English teacher's behind the counter, slicing Nova. So, so I, uh, I, I really, uh, that was a wonderful moment of schadenfreude. <laughs> well, anyway, this was, I guess, 1971, and this was the beginning of kind of the low-budget uh, movie world. Uh, the movie Joe with um, uh, Susan Sarandon's first movie. Oh um, yeah, Hamilton's uh, film. Great. Yeah, that was yeah okay. That was one of the first breakout movies done by an independent. It was Canon Films. Not the canon of Golden Globus. They bought it later. So uh, uh, I'm sitting around with my friends, probably getting high, like on one weekend. And we said, we should make a movie. And of course, I'm a professional writer. I've been in print. So um, we put together with the, the, the you know, coterie of creative people in Philadelphia and Trenton, New Jersey that I knew. And I made a uh, basically a Cheech and Chong movie before Cheech and Chong, which was called Arnold's Wrecking Company, which is currently streaming on Shout. TV network. So if you want to go see my first movie, uh, you can find it there and you'll recognize Philadelphia and Bucks County environs uh, in that movie. That, so when I, that showed up, that was one of those, I have never heard of this. How have I never heard of this? This has got to happen now type of movies. Just because, yeah, I mean, talk about a, a revelation. Like anybody who's followed your career knows you from the stuff that started in the 80s. So this is a huge, like, fine for. All right, so th so anyway, so we shot uh, this was uh, I guess 1972. We shot this on um, uh, on weekends, and uh, I uh, had just wrapped the movie up, and I had entered it in a film festival, the Atlanta International Film Festival, um, and uh, it won the special jury prize there. Uh, this you know was the perfect time for this kind of film to come out, and, and I had people, I had all these people saying, I had the luck of signing with a distributor who ended up going bankrupt, like the month the movie was released. So it had no release, essentially. Um, but I did meet um, a couple of people from show business. Um, it, I have a photograph somewhere, I think I tweeted it recently, of um, Martin Landau handing me the award. He mm. just died the other day. But there's, I have a photograph of Martin Landau handing me the award. Uh, and Bud Bud Bedecker was on the panel. I spent time with him and, and uh, Frank Capra. It was a great experience. Wow. Anyway, there was one of the people uh, who was there on one of these you know, panels was uh, Barney Rosenzweig, who was the producer of Charlie's Angels, 
And he said, if you ever cut to Hollywood, you know, look me up. You know, I can, maybe could do an episode of Charlie's Angels, whatever about it being. Uh, so at this time, I knew enough from reading Writer's, Mag Writer's Digest and the Writer Magazine that you had to have a writing sample and that all of my print samples did count. No one's going to read, you know, something I wrote for the New York Times and say this guy could write a screenplay. So I sat down and I spent like the next, so this was like November, so I probably spent the next four months and I wrote two spec scripts, the same two genres that kept me in ninth grade an extra year because I always had um, Raymond Chandler or uh, Isaac Asimov behind my algebra book. Uh, I wrote a science fiction script and a uh, paranoid crime thriller. And um, we, I, we sold my extra car, which is a kind of a beater. I got $300 for this crappy car, which was enough for a round-trip ticket on the Freddie Laker cheap airline. And I uh, say to uh, my wife and my, my little baby daughter, I said, well, I'm going to Hollywood. I'm going to stay with my uncle and aunt. And I'm going to give myself three months to be successful in Hollywood. That seems reasonable. So now uh, my aunt, she says, you know, one of my best girlfriends is Merv Griffin's secretary. Uh, and, uh, you know, there might be something over there because he does the Merv Griffin show and he does all the game shows, you know, Wheel of Fortune and the Hollywood Squares and whatever. Go see her. Uh, so the, the next day, um, I go down to see her for coffee, uh, and, uh, she says, you know, I didn't realize until after you're already coming over, but, um, we're not hiring any writers for the game shows right now, uh, which is writing quiz things, a different thing than you do anyway. And there's really no writers, uh, positions available for the talk show. It's a different thing. The talent coordinators write like, you know, suggestions and copy for Merv to ask the guests and he writes his own stuff, so this may be a fool's errand. So I'm kind of depressed, even though it was exciting to see the Hollywood Squares live. You know, I walked in and I saw, you know, uh, I forget the guy. Paul uh, Lind? Well, no, the, Paul Lind, exactly, thank you. I saw Paul Lind, <laughs> uh, I saw Paul Lind in person. Uh, anyway, uh, but she says, wait a minute, there was a young lawyer who was in, in Merv's law firm, and I heard he left the law firm and became an agent. I've got his number here somewhere. So she gets the guy on the phone and says, I have a family friend here. Uh, he's a published writer. Uh, he, he's uh, worked in local television. Uh, uh, he's did an award-winning film. Uh, he's looking for an agent. And he says, all right, come by. Uh, so I go right over there. And the guy is literally taking things out of a cart and putting them into a desk. Like it's his first day at work. So I give him the two spec scripts. And he says, you know, I, I can't give out this script of the coffee ring. I said, well, I'll, I'll make a new copy for you. Uh, this is just for you to read. Um, and uh, he says, well, you do television. I go, what do you mean? He says, some people say they only do features. I don't know. I'll do anything. All right, I'll read the stuff. And I get back to you. I come back to my aunt and uncle's house. My aunt's in her bathrobe waiting at the front door like I'm, coming, I'm late coming home from the prom. And I go, what's going on? And she said, this guy said to call no matter what the hour. So I call back. It's this agent. He says, and I read your stuff. I think it's fantastic. I think you can make it in this town. And I've set an appointment for you tomorrow with one of my other clients. So I say, listen, that's great. I would love to get advice from a professional Hollywood writer. He says, no, Steve, Steve, you don't understand. We represent actors, writers, directors, producers. This client is a producer of The Six Million Dollar Man. And they have a terrible time getting writers who can write for that show. Because writers who come to that show from, like, uh, Hawaii Five-0. They'll say, okay, um, uh, Steve Austin sees the bad guys escaping, and he flies up and he jumps on the airplane. And they say he can't fly. And, well, I need him to fly for my story, and they don't understand there's a limited palette 
of of, of superpowers. Uh, and then the people who come from science fiction shows like Star Trek, they'll come in and say, okay, he uses his bionic eye to look inside the bad guy's office and he sees the, uh, just, he sees the uh, secret bank account. And they say, no, 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 it's a secret that he has a bionic eye. Even if he does that, he's got to get legitimate evidence and get a warrant. But your sample of a crime script and a science fiction script shows you get both sides of this equation. And they want to meet you tomorrow. They've read, you know, they have read your two spec scripts. So the next morning, I go out to my aunt dropped me off at Universal Studios, and I go in and I meet Harv Bennett, who later on did the Star Trek movies. Here's some stuff we want you to read, and go see uh, a Betty about parking. And I go, well, I don't need to be validated. My aunt dropped me off, and they all chuckle. No, 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 no. We mean your permanent parking space. You're starting here Monday at Universal Studios uh, on staff. Now, the first couple of days at work, I'm there Monday and Tuesday. The, the staff is taking me around. Look at this kid. Let me show you the ropes. And the, the line producers on the show, uh, not hard Ben at the top people, but the line producers, these are like non-writing. Now television is almost all writing producers. But then there were still guys who were nuts and bolts. And these guys had been working on – one of these producers had produced the Little Rascals. So by Wednesday, the word gets back that, that my agent says you've got to hire him as a story editor. So all my buddies now turn on me. Because I'm going to be above them. They hire me as a story editor, and the story editor is 1350 a week in, 1970, <laughs> in, in 1976. I'll take it. I'll take it now. Uh, anyway, we go into the editing room, and they're showing they're, they're showing dailies of the six million dollar man. And Harv Bennett says, "Do we have another shot of Lee at the door?" And the uh, the so the editor looks at the shot list. He says, "No. Why?" He says, "Because I want him to like give her a look." And he, does, he, didn't, he didn't do it. We're going to have to go and reshoot that. So I turn around and I say, no, you don't. Two weeks ago on the episode, whatever it was, he was wearing that same members only jacket when he was protecting the girl in the motel. But if you take that shot from that episode, flip it 180 degrees and blow it up 15% to get the checkout time sign on the door out of the shot, it'll work here. Now, as I get halfway through this speech, I realize my buddy, the producer, is kicking me. And I realize in the silence of the room that no one is supposed to ever talk unless spoken to first in Harv Bennett's screening room. Mm. <laughs> so there's a long pause. And uh, finally, the editor says, son of a bitch, Harv, I think he's right. And I say, all right, D'Souza, you just jump to the short list of people who can talk in the editing room. <laughs> and, so, and the show got canceled in short order and somebody says well what are we going to do now we have six shows to post and Harv says well Steve's pretty good in post let him do it and I'm such an idiot I didn't realize I should have had my agent say okay you got to make me a producer now because I'm posting but I ended up like you know doing post production on the last five episodes of the show like editing and putting in the score and stuff like that because I knew how to do that but as a result of that uh, people noticed and I worked my way up the food chain at Universal until I was a, a live, the showrunner and producer of Knight Rider. So anyway, uh, there was a, my contract was up for renewal, and I developed enough of a reputation that time. So Paramount made a better offer. I went, and Paramount said, "Come over here, and we'll get you. It will make you. We'll get you in the movie business." Uh, so I go to meet Larry Gordon for the first time. At this time, Joel Silver is like an assistant uh, for him. And this is the first time he's going to get a credit on anything besides assistant. He's going to get like he had an associate producer credit, I think, on the Renegades pilot. 
Larry uh, said to me, listen, we have the script we've been trying to make for years now, and we like what you did on The Renegades, where you brought uh, comedy and action together, and this was 48 Hours. Yes. And the script had been around so long that the original plan was that the burned-out middle-aged cop was going to be Robert Mitchum, and the young hoodlum he has to get out of prison was going to be Clint Eastwood. Oh my god! Oh my god! Can I take a moment to just dream about? What Wait, that yeah, uh, let's like? let's absorb what that forty-eight hours would look like. <laughs> so, so that that would have been the version that would have been shot in nineteen sixty-nine. Good lord! Well, they they said take it home, read over the weekend. They right. already decided they wanted to get Eddie Murphy, who was already on Saturday Night Live, and they said we're going to get this guy. We want to put him in this movie. Uh, so there was a story going around for for a while that I rewrote the script in forty-eight hours, which is like too perfect. I did not, but what I did was come up with ideas to, like, you know, make it more inventive. Waterhill is kind of a very uh, straightforward, beaten potatoes guy. I, I would say to him sometimes, isn't that kind of a cliche? He'd say, when I do it, it's not a cliche, it's an archetype. So what was I, he like? Was he, was he daunting, intimidating? Was he, was, uh, well, was I'll he tell you what he was like. Uh, the after they decided to hire me, uh, they say, come to a meeting uh, in uh, Michael Eisner's office. Now, at this time... There was not a firewall between television and film, uh, uh, which uh, later on became the norm at most places. Uh, so uh, Eisner uh, was uh, features, uh, Katzenberg was television, but they were both in this meeting. So I go into the meeting and Walter Hill's there. Now, what I don't know at this time, I'm totally clueless on you know Hollywood politics. The original script was written by Roger Spottiswood, who mm. in fact had directed the pilot of, uh, of uh, The Renegades. Water Hill had rewritten the script. The script that I got had been rewritten by Water Hill. But I didn't know that because the way it works is until the credits are determined, it'll say written by Roger Spottiswood. It said uh, uh, revisions by uh, Water Hill. So I, I didn't connect it. So I don't realize that, like, they're hiring me to rewrite Water Hill because they don't like, they don't want to shoot the his script. He was not capital Water Hill yet. Right. And he had right, done right. things. This is trying to be an urban comedy. This is like a new thing for him. Right. So uh, this is where I meet him in the room. And they say Steve is one of the most is a talented young writer. He's uh, saved our ass just recently on another file. And he said, well, uh, uh, what's, what has he done that I've seen? Uh, well, Steve's a television writer uh, and a very good. And he says, a television writer. <laughs> have a television writer rewrite me. And they say to Walter, well, he's not rewriting you. He's here to help you. Just, you know, bring some, like, you know, he's got a lot of, like, fun, youthful ideas he ran by us. But he says, but he's going to work for you, Walter, and you can, like, you know, he he needs your help. You can be a mentor to him. He hasn't done a feature. And what it, what, he'll give you stuff, and you'll make it better. Uh, but you, you should have seen how much comedy he brought. It's, it's comedy. I don't do comedies. And they go, we know you don't do comedies, Walter. But, and this is where Katzenberg, he says, there's no reason this movie, if we get this Eddie Murphy, he's naturally funny. There's no reason this movie can't be as successful as, as, and he looks around the room and for some reason seizes upon the poster that's on the back of his door for a stir crazy. Richard Pryor is in a chicken suit. So he says, this is your model. And Walter Hill walks out, slams the door so hard that the, Stir crazy poster falls off the door <laughs> onto the floor and the grass grass shatters. That's called symbolism, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I go, listen, I don't think this guy wants to be on the movie. Maybe I should just, listen, Steve, you work for us. He works for us. You know, it'll work out. He's still the director. He said, What kind of ideas do you have for the show? And I say, Well, here's my first thought is 
there's a scene here where they look for the, the my first problem is on like page eight, the Nick Nolte character says, but this gang attacked another gang that was doing a drug deal and they got away with a suitcase of cocaine and a million dollars. There's nowhere to go. There's no onion to unpeel. And the whole movie is a stage weight. Wouldn't it be better if we say they, this gang attacked another gang before the movie began, stole their drugs and stole it, but they don't know they also had a million dollars. And Eddie Murphy and all the gang are looking for the million dollars, so there's something to reveal. Now that my big problem is the scene here where Eddie Murphy's character is gonna show how tough he is, and they get to a tough bar, and Nick Nolte realizes this tough black bar he can never get in there and get out alive. And Eddie Murphy says, well, Whitey, I mean, this was in the script as, as written. He says, well, Whitey, I can talk to the brothers. And I go, this is terrible. This, this undercuts Nick Nolte, that he's scared to go into the bar. It undercuts Eddie Murphy. Wouldn't it be better if it was a redneck bar and Nick Nolte does it just to fuck with him? So somebody says, well, wait a minute. If there was a bar like that in San Francisco, it, it would be a gay bar. And I go, you know that and I know that, but nobody in the audience knows that. <laughs> so these were, these were among the ideas I brought to the table, which made them put me on the picture. Uh, the second or third day I'm writing it, they say the actors want to meet you. So Nick Nolte comes in and he looks like his, his, uh, his uh, mugshot, if you remember the famous mugshot, yep. the younger version of the mugshot. And he says, yeah, I'm going to lose this. I got to get the shape. I got to lose this pot belly. They're going to hire a, a trainer for me. Um, and then Eddie comes in. And Eddie, he's so clueless about the pecking order in Hollywood, he wore a suit and tie to meet the writer. He didn't know any better. <laughs> and he's super polite. And like he's like, he's like auditioning to like, uh, for a job at my like, department store. So I come out and I say, listen, I'm going to make Nick Nolte's character a slob and Eddie Murphy's character a sharp. And there'll be a running gag that they always think he's the cop and he's the hoodlum. Tell her to fit their personalities. Anyway, about the third or fourth day of me writing this script and turning it in, I get a phone call from Joel Silver and he says, I want you to come over to Larry Gordon's office. Don't tell anyone where you're going, including your secretary. If you run into Walter, don't say anything to him. Tell him you're going to the cafeteria. And I go, what's up? Just come here and you'll see. So I go over to Larry Gordon's office and Katzenberg and Eisner are there, which is very unusual that they would go there. They would not go to them, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a long coffee table and there's these different documents there. And they say, I want you to look at these pages here and tell us what you think of them. Like this is Wednesday. So it's three piles of pages I sent to the print shop. So I start to look at it and I go, well, yeah, these are the pages I said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. And I realized this is all changed back. Everything I did has been taken out. And they all look and say, uh-huh, exactly what we thought. It's okay. From now on, Steve, you do not send your pages to the print shop. When you write any pages for this movie, you call Joel's office and his secretary will come and get them. And what was going on was Walter was rewriting my stuff before anybody even saw it. He was so anti-comedy. And when I'd be in meetings with him, you know, I remember one particular time he says, uh, there's one thing he says, listen, uh, when Nick gets in his car to go out, I want you to take the scarf that the girlfriend gave him and hang it on his uh, mirror. It's a little touch uh, you probably would understand. I said, oh, like the night Aaron putting his lady's token on his lance and he turned bright red. I remember that distinctly. Uh, he used to take out, a, he had a collection of knives 
And like when the conversation get heated, he would play with his knives. He also had baseball bats that were autographed by baseball stars. And he liked to walk around the office swishing them over my head. Huh. You know, there was, an, so. there was an era of guys like that. I, I spent an afternoon with John Milius and heard stories about him uh, with his shotgun that he would ha- keep in his office and that he could dismantle and hide in various file cabinets if it ever became an issue. No, I, but, I spent a lot of time with John. He just did that to fuck with people, you know. And that's what I But like, there's there's guys who I think certainly they, they adapted this persona. And I wonder how much of that is similar in, in Hill because Hill had this. As a public figure, his persona is very macho and swaggering, yeah. and that's a big part of his movies too. Uh, never, not only did he never like thank me or acknowledge it, uh, but he gave interviews about how, uh, like, I, I had just written a couple of jokes, and the Writers Guild is so uh, uh, anti-director that they gave me credit I should never have gotten it. This is the yeah. kind of stuff he said. But I noticed this last theatrical picture he did. It said from the director of, of Forty Eight Hours. So if you're referencing a movie that's like you know. Uh, 40 years old on your poster, you must have liked it. Well, one of the things about 48 Hours that jumps out and and that was so revelatory for those of us who saw it like theatrically and were of a certain age was Eddie was already a giant TV star and we were super into what he was doing. But that the moment he appears in 48 Hours, it's clear to the audience this guy's a giant movie star. And you guys captured that sort of lightning bolt moment of Eddie becoming that did you realize as you're looking at dailies or as as it's coming together did you have that feeling like this guy is even bigger than what we thought it was going what the first days were but the studio was very nervous after the first week of work with him and they wanted to replace him and and uh joel silver uh uh, got some footage cut together to show joel was always the guy that liked the humor he used to always say let's he would and he would argue with with uh, walter and also on all the subsequent pictures even with Larry Gordon, his partner, he'd say, don't cut the jokes. And as you're trying to get the script shorter and make it like, you know, fit the length, uh, somebody always says, let's cut some of these jokes. And Joel will always say, never cut jokes. You can always cut them after the test screening, but you can't put them in if you don't have them. Yep. Uh, so uh, that that's something, uh, a byword uh, <clears throat> that I've gone by. Well, anyway, the movie comes out, never mentioned it. My name is on the poster. My name's in the ad, but I'm never mentioned in any of the publicity at all. Because it's all going across the water's desk. After the movie comes out, there's like silence. By this time, I, I'm back on the Universal lot. Uh, but I'm surprised I'm not getting any movie offers. And one day, um, a guy who is a television director comes to my office. And he says, listen, you should know that Water Hill is bad-mouthing you all over this town. You wrote like uh, three or four pages of jokes that he uh, threw out half of them and stuck them in. Uh, that uh, the Writers Guild screwed up somehow and gave you a credit. You should know this. That this stand-up guy was Avon Naj, who at this time, unbeknownst to me, but later on found out, was Heidi Fleiss's pimp. Oh, oh God. He was the stand-up guy that tells me this. So time goes by. Uh, I'm working, and I get a phone call from my agent, and he says, listen, uh, Joel Silver wants to talk to you, come to my Christmas party. I said, Joel Silver, I can't get that guy on the phone. And Walter Hill's pissing to my name all over town. You want to get even? Have him give you a lot of money. He wants to talk to you about another picture. So uh, what what had happened in the interim, I have to back up here, is that uh, right after this picture got made, 48 Hours, uh, Larry, Joel, and Walter made uh, Streets of Fire. What happened as that movie got together, Larry Gordon looks in Variety one day, and it says that Joel Silver and... Walter Hill are making a movie called Streets of Fire at Universal Studios. 
So Larry, who has a, a stuffed piranha on his desk and a little sign that says the only thing tougher than the Jew that, a Jew that got out of Auschwitz is a Jew that got out of Mississippi, meaning himself. So he calls, he calls up Joel and basically says, uh, Joel, this announcement about this movie, which is like one week after we premiered 48 Hours, it seems to me the only way you and Walter could have cooked up that movie would have been on my payroll, on my set. So I think there's a mistake in that press release that I'm sure you're one of <laughs> that you're going to want to fix before my lawyers fix it. That so that's how that came together. So what they did is well, they said it's all the same people that made 48 Hours, except it wasn't. I wasn't there, so the movie tanked. I go to the Christmas party, and Joel says, "Listen, I should have called you back." Uh, I was wrong, uh, Walter. It was Walter. He made me do it. He, you know, we were doing the other movie with him, and like I couldn't do it. He, he, he would have, he would have known. I called you back from the set when and the movie came out. It tanked, you know. So, uh, you know, let's just put it aside. I want to make another movie with you. You know who Arnold Schwarzenegger is? So it turned out that um, this, at 20th Century Fox, Larry was at a production, and uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the guy. He's a major, major guy. I'm having a senior moment here. Uh, had just become the new head of the studio. God, Barry Diller had just become the new head of 20th Century Fox. Right. And this first day at work, uh, he, he said to Larry Gordon, who's the head of production, he said, I ran into Arnold Schwarzenegger at a cocktail party, and this guy is a really smart, funny guy with a great sense of humor, uh, and I think he could be in a movie where he's not a caveman or a robot. If you can make a movie with this guy for $10 million, I'll green light it immediately. So in the wake of that conversation, he got somebody to get five scripts that were dead, buried, that like development hell. And I and everybody came back on Monday and said the script called Commando is the one that's closest to becoming an Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, property. So this is Monday morning, right? He says, OK, great. You're going to go see uh, 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 Schwarzenegger uh, at one o'clock. And I go, well, 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 wait a minute. I, 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 aren't you going to give him this? We can't give him the script. The script is a normal guy. First of all, the script is a, is a former Mossad agent. So already we're in trouble with Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> right? uh, plus, he, the, the wife and daughter are in kidnapped on page 50. And there's all kinds of other problems. you got to make it a Schwarzenegger vehicle. And right. I, said, I haven't had any time to think about it. But now they all know I've been in television, right? Where you break things. I said, you'll figure it out on the car ride. So we drive over to cross town to Arnold Schwarzenegger's office, and Arnold again. You're talking about like the, the you know the, the 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 game of domination. He has everybody has photographs on their desk, right? There's one photograph that's facing you in whatever chair you're in, which is his father in a Wehrmacht uniform with a German Shepherd leaping at the lens so violently it's blurry. Mm. So I said, my dad is a picture just like that, but he's in a different uniform. So, <laughs> so, so that broke the ice. I basically pitched the movie you've seen to Arnold, uh, reinvented to be a tougher, rougher, you know, a character. And then at a certain point I say, and then you say to him, remember, Sully, when I said I would kill you last? I lied. So he gives me a big look and I go, I do all the greats, Arnold. I do Cary Grant, I do Jimmy Cagney, I do you. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually have a couple of lines of me doing Arnold's lines in The Running Man by accident. When we did the temporary track, you know, you, when you have your actors uh, do a movie, 
they in the contract it says they're good for so many days of ADR, automatic dialogue replacement after you wrap the movie, but you don't want to burn those days off on a temporary cut. So they said, you do a good Arnold. And then later on, when they did the final cut, the sound editor got confused. So I have three lines, and the running man is actually me. I know that with the uh, the border that happened with Phil Hartman doing Jack Nicholson, and there's like two lines left of that in there. It's That's, that's amazing when that happens. Okay, so, so 48 hours, big, big hit. Uh, Walter Hill tried to uh, kind of strong arm most of the credit. But aside from Commando, like at this point, you, you must have been get your agent must have been getting other phone calls, right? Oh yeah. What happened was, uh, what, let me just back up on the commando story. So Arnold, okay, said, yeah. after I tell him the story, Arnold stands up and says, "I like this part. It's a part John Wayne could play. I am not a robot from the future, a caveman from the past. I do this picture." So he shakes up my hand. He shakes Joel's. We get in the car. Joel, this is the early days. This is not a cell phone. He had a car phones in that era. This is like 1982, I guess. No, this is 1984. Uh, a car phone in that era was the same as a, a as a phone on a boat. You would get the San Pedro Marine operator. So when you dial, it said San Pedro Marine operator. Uh, are, is your ship sinking? No, we want to make a sh- a, a, sh- a sh- ship to shore call. And we made a landline, and we say Arnold's in. We go back to the office. Larry has a stenographer there. He has the head of physical production, and he says, "All right, tell us what you told Arnold, but give us details." Now remember, I'd worked at television. So I now say, uh, okay, opening scene, three mysterious murders, five pages, could be practical or backlot. Next scene, Arnold and daughter, title sequence, petting zoo, you know, you know, ma- you know, making waffles. Uh, this is probably a practical location. He's in retirement. Uh, helicopter lands, and I just lay out the whole movie, but I say each time how many pages in my head it will be, mm-hmm. based on my experience now. I've already been doing this for... Uh, you know, eight years. So at the end of this thing, uh, Larry turns to the, to the stenographer and says, how many pages is that? She says, 105. He says, fine, type that up. Start building those sets. Steve, start writing. Don't change any sets without telling us. So I do this a page one rewrite of the screenplay. This was right before the writer's strike. And the writer's strike was going to be, uh, I think, May 4th, uh, 1985. And all writing had to stop. Pencils had to be down. And every script in Hollywood had to be sent in to the Writers Guild by 5 p.m. so they could tell if any writing went on during the strike. Right. So, but we're racing against the clock. I said, listen, it's better for me to write at home. There's fewer distractions and less noise. And I have a computer. They, they, they still weren't giving the writers computers in the studio. You know, they give you a typewriter. They hadn't gotten that yet. And I'll get more done, like, at home. So I'm working at home. And they said, send a messenger out to my house to take the script to the Writers Guild at 5 o'clock. So I'm just doing the last set of changes. I've already given them a rough draft. And now I'm doing the last set of changes for the studio. So the guy comes to my house. And it's, like, around 3.15 in the afternoon. And I'm 20 minutes away from the Writers Guild over the hill from Beverly Hills. And I'm all done. And I press print. And then it, then it starts to go, Neem. Yeah, and I go, wait a minute, it's 1985, this is a dot matrix printer, and I do the math, this script is not going to be printed until like 6.45. So now I'm in a panic, it's still coming out, uh, the guy's waiting there, and I'm in a panic, there's no way it's going to get over there, and the alternative is to call the studio and send, send the last draft over, but if they do that, and they ever check, they're going to think I wrote during the strike. So I call up the Writers Guild, and I say, listen, can I register a script electronically? Now, this is before the internet. It's the days of bulletin boards. So the person right. in charge of the strike office has no idea what I'm talking about. 
So I say get somebody in uh, bookkeeping, in uh, residuals uh, on the phone. So now they patch in somebody residuals. I say, can you explain to the people in the strike office that a computer file has a date and time on it? Yes, and it can't be forged. No. All right. Now get somebody in legal on the phone. So in this phone call, they decide for the first time that they will take electronic registrations. Right? You are. That's a trailblazing moment. I've registered yeah, so several I, screenplays electronically now. <laughs> right. So, so, I, so I put it on a five and a quarter inch floppy and the guy takes it over there. He gets there five minutes before they close. This is May 4th. The movie was in theaters October, I think, 10th. This is how fast this picture got made. It gets yeah. crazier than that. The opening scene in the movie where they whack the guy in his driveway. That's mm -hmm. my house. The picture was out like in October. And then when that movie came out, everybody in town said, hey, that movie, Commando, reminds me a lot of 48 Hours. I see a commonality, balls to the wall action with a lot of humor. So that's when things really took off for me because people discerned a pattern. <laughs> I think the <laughs> argument can be made, though, Stephen, if you look at 48 Hours and you look at Commando and you look at Die Hard and just the, the tone and the style of those three movies, there, there's a case to be made that, in large part, those kind of define how 80s action was shot and written and played, and that people chase those movies profoundly afterwards. Yeah, I'll tell you, the difference uh, that, that humor makes, my mother loves 48 Hours and Commando. Those are not movies for a 70-year-old Jewish woman. She oh. loves those movies because they're funny in mixed in with some badass action. The humor brings in, you know, action brings in action fans. Humor and action brings in everybody, I think. So, so Commando comes out. It's a big hit. You're already working on The Running Man. And I'm personally, as, as a huge Stephen King fan, I'm curious to know how did you approach like, okay, now I'm writing something all by myself. I'm not rewriting somebody else's script. And I'm adapting one of the most popular authors in the world. Did that make you a little hesitant or did you just jump right into it? Well, what's funny is when they bought that script, they didn't know it was Stephen King because it yep. was a pseudonym. One of the producers bought it. He was on a layover and he bought the book just to read on the airport. Uh, and it was only when they went to negotiate to say, why is this price so high for this unknown writer? Uh, you have to make adjustments. I didn't decide to like, you know, like uh, upend uh Stephen King's intentions, but for example, in the book, uh, his uh, child is tubercular and dying, and his wife is a hooker, because the economy is so bad, there's no work. So the idea, the hero is described as thin and tubercular. The air pollution is so bad that everybody walks around with like special nose filters, but the poor people can't afford them. So there's a huge, just like that, there's the 1% and everybody else. The idea that Arnold Schwarzenegger goes on the game show because he can't get a job and he's desperate for money. I Like I've said many times, once you cast Arnold, I mean, couldn't he get a job delivering pianos door to door? Yeah. So the idea that he goes on the show because he needs money had to go out the window. So you go right away to Bread and Circuses, that the TV show is the, the Roman uh, arena. Oh, yeah. it, it goes to that. You eliminate the wife who's a hooker and you eliminate the dying kid because they both die before the movie is over. But the game show in the book is like a game show from the 1950s. It's mm -hmm. like uh, You Bet Your Life with Groucho Marx. A pretty girl comes out with a box around her neck, and the runners pick an envelope from there, and that says how much lead time you have about, uh, ahead of the hunters. They were yeah. called hunters, not stalkers, and they're anonymous. You're walking down the street, and a meter maid kills you. Oh, she was a hunter. 
A lot of people like to say that when uh, a screenwriter or filmmakers alter a lot from the source material, that that's quote unquote bad. I love Stephen King's source material, and I also love the the movie, and I love them because they're wildly different. You know that that's not necessarily a bad thing. That that it's been an adaptation is not a translation. You know, well, well none of these things were done just to piss on the project. It was, it was simply to fit. Like this is our actor. This is the internal logic of the story. Mm-hmm. Another thing in the book, the host of the game show and the producer were two different people. All right, but in the real world, anybody who's the host of a TV show by the third season gets to become a producer. You ever watch any TV shows? The star yeah. is the producer. So it was much better to have one strong character. Give us a little anecdote on how Richard Dawson got involved because, man, by that point, people had almost forgotten that he was an actor. He was so iconic as a game was, show host. That was Jackie Birch, our casting director. That was her genius idea, and it was great. And once we knew we had him, I, I could tailor it for him. Uh, in fact, uh, he took to it so much at one point uh, on the on on the on the uh, at the studio, uh, Tim Zinnemann was one of the producers. Said you got to go down to the set and 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 see what Richard's doing. And I said I can't get in that set with a shoehorn because every guy on the lot was going down to see Paula Abdul's dancers. She was the choreographer. Uh-huh. He said, well, well, he's ad-libbing like crazy. He thinks he's doing Family Feud. So what he's doing there, he would actually do. He would actually call up extras out of the audience and kiss them and do stick with them. He would uh-huh. spend like five minutes and go off script. I, I said, we have a real problem now because he goes on and so long at a certain point you say, why doesn't Arnold just break loose and grab a machine gun from a guard and escape? Because he's yeah. got his thumb up his ass while Richard Dawson is kissing old ladies. So I went <laughs> down and talked to Richard. I said, listen, I want to, I, I see what you're doing. I want to do more of this. Tell me some of the things, you know, some of, uh, some of these things you want to do and let me put it in the script for you. So that once I did that, I was able to like, you know, channel this great shtick that he was doing, but not have it run away with the movie and be, you know, it needs to be 10% of the scenes at the studio, not 90% of the scenes. Right, right, uh, right, right. Studio. From the, before we get to the big, big, big baby of the 1980s, there's one other film I want to touch on real quick. Uh, I have kind of a special affection. Drew, Bad Dreams? Oh, you're getting really obscure. Okay, that was, that was I think, after I had done... I think I had just written Die Hard, but it hadn't been shot yet or it hadn't come out yet. And uh, I got a call to do this rewrite for uh, Gail Ann Hurd. Uh, and it was a script that was already written. And I did a, you know, a, a big rewrite of it. Yeah. Why don't you real quick uh, talk about the arbitration process? Because you're a guy who's done a lot of uncredited work. And you've also done a lot of heavy writing on stuff that had already been started or finished. So, like... Just, I know there's a lot of things that, you know, Writers Guild members are not supposed to talk about, but just give us a, like a, a cursory overview of how this works. Say I write a movie and then they hire you to rewrite it. How does this process work? Uh, when a picture is finished, the studio uh, puts out a proposed credit of what they think it should be, mm-hmm. in their opinion. The Writers Guild is the final determinant of that proposed credit. If the writers who worked on it are just right, are writers, that's their only job. They have no other job on the movie. Right. If no one objects, the Writers Guild says, fine. If someone objects, then they look at all the written material. If one of the writers is a studio executive, a director or a producer, it is automatically an arbitration under the presumption that that person uh, is doing what they used to do in the bad old days. And say, listen, uh, Scott, 
remember I said the Cowboys should wear a white hat? I think I wrote that movie with you. You like working at the studio, don't you, Scott? Mm-hmm. You know, so whenever a producer, for example, in 48 Hours, <clears throat> it was automatic arbitration because yeah. Walter was a director. So uh, what happens is a panel of three people are put together and they read all the material and they decide what the credit should be. Now, there's a Writers Guild credits manual. If you're really interested in this, you can find it online or have them send it to you. And it explains how to do this. And it's you can't just go by page count. As they, they give examples, a change can be on one page. And right. have such ramifications that the entire plot is. Oh, yeah. I mean, just a personality trait itself could now the film is all of a sudden about alcoholism because you made him an alcoholic, you know. Uh, uh, by the same token, yeah. by the same token, the script could be completely rewritten. Mm -hmm. and nothing has changed. But uh, if I would give an example, like, hey, let's pretend that the crying game was a rewrite. And they brought a writer and said, listen, I can only work for a day on this. But what if what if she has a dick? Suddenly the entire movie changes. Right, 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 right. Okay, so now we get to the big one. You're, you're, you've written some really good films, well-received, big hits. How does Die Hard land on your desk? Well, again, I had done so much work with the uh, Larry Gordon and Joel Silver. Uh, they had this script. They were about to go with it. And they were discovering that, like, they could not get anybody to make the movie. Every big star in Hollywood turned the script down. And the reason was, you got to put this in context, that the, this era of Rambo uh, and Commando and Schwarzenegger yes. and mm -hmm. uh, Stallone and these kind of heroes, and people were rejecting the script and saying, the hero's a pussy. He spends the first 30 pages hiding and trying to call the police. Yeah. People could not wrap their head around this idea. So it's legendary, as I'm sure you know. Schwarzenegger turned it down. Stallone yep. turned it down. Richard Gere turned it down. <laughs> Burt Reynolds turned it down. Jimmy Kahn turned it down to his, to his regret. And at the same time, they knew they wanted the script to, to have a lot of humor added to it. So they knew me really well. The script had been written before. The original writer, Jeb Stewart, he had finished his work, you know, first draft, second draft polish, did a great job of breaking the back of the book, and they brought me in. Yes, I added humor, but I also uh, made a lot of changes. When the book was originally written, to the uh, Bader Meinhof German gang, they were actually taking hostages and... Uh, doing things, and I said, you know, let's freshen that up. What if they're pretending to be terrorists? Yeah, right? yeah. It, it sort of takes the, the curse off of it. Uh, the script had a problem. The original book is entirely the point of view of the hero uh, named uh, John Leyland, not John McClain. Um, the reason they changed his name, you may know, is this is a sequel to a Frank Sinatra movie called The Detective. Mm -hmm. Do you know that? I knew there was some connective tissue to an earlier film, but I didn't, uh, earlier book, uh, any yeah, film. Yeah, but yeah, I, a good bar bet is you go into a bar and say, you know the part that uh, Bruce Willis played in Die Hard 2 and Die Hard 3 and 4? Who is the first guy to play that part in what movie? And when they say, you know, Bruce Willis in Die Hard 1, you know, Frank Sinatra and the detective and grab the money and run out before they beat you up. <laughs> uh, anyway, they, they actually had to offer the script first to Sinatra. And fortunately, he said, I'm too old and too rich to do this, which is good because the chases would have been on rascal scooters in the yeah. corridors if he'd done it. And then once they he was out, they changed the name of the character to sever the legal connection to the previous movie. Oh, then, yeah. Because then, then uh, Sinatra would still have had to been a producer on it. Interesting, interesting. This isn't the Dodds. They're saying we adapted. It's no longer a sequel. It's not the same character. In the okay. book, the guy is 60, 65 years old. He's a right. retired cop. It's his daughter in the building. The Got daughter it. dies. 
right? The daughter is also more like Ellis. Oh. Turns out she actually did some of the shady sh shit that the, that the terrorists are upset about. Uh -huh. uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the terrorist is actually a former Nazi that Leyland had as a prisoner at the end of World War II. He knows him personally. Oh, Remember, okay. the book is written like, you know, I guess in the early 70s, so the math works out. Um, it, uh, two things that Jeb, that, that, uh, Jeb Stewart did that were great. At the time the book was written, uh, the CB craze was going. CB radio, Roger Goodbuddy, Convoy, he had a con, right? So that's yeah. already over by the time we make the movie. So the original contact outside was a gypsy cab driver. So he made it right away, this cop. Yeah. The cop actually came in very late in the game. Uh, eventually, the gypsy cab driver handed it off to the police. So he made uh, he did that, and that was really important. And of course, making the character younger and making it the wife and so forth. One of my big contributions was the um, crazy safe because the whole movie was a stage weight. When the movie and the book was in the guy's head, you only know what's going on through his head. You never cut away. Right. So you're in his head, and he can be thinking about recognizing the Nazi. And then there's like you know about eight pages about World War II. He realizes what daughter's a hostage. He remembers when he took her to boarding school. You know what I mean? All this internal mental stuff gives right. you like a 260-page book. But now in the movie, there's not enough to go around. Um, so uh, it, it, the stage weight in, in the novel was it takes several hours to crack a good safe. For the movie, I invented this cockamamie safe that has like, you know, like, like a Russian nesting doll that has yeah. all crazy locks with the preposterous argument that there's a special optic cable that goes to Tokyo from this from this building. You know, one person has ever said to me, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Nope. Of all the things people come to me, I don't believe this. I don't, nobody has ever busted me on the most ridiculous thing, which is this pre preposterous uh, safe. Uh, and this picture was, uh, once I did the rewrite, um, they said, listen, we think Bruce Willis is right for this part because he can be funny. Uh, and that was a big controversial thing because he was a TV Oh, I remember. I remember. I was a huge Moonlighting fan. And I remember I had seen Blind Date in the theaters. And I had seen, you know, and then it's like, oh, Sunset. Is a two movies yeah. of Tank, Sunset yeah. yep. and yep. Blind Date. So uh, the fact that he was getting this big movie, Richard Dreyfus, who I knew, he called his agent up the next day and said, Bruce Willis is getting $5 million. I don't get $5 million. I have an Academy Award. You're fired. Uh, so it, it, it sort of rocked town and began a whole arms race on how, how people get hired. One of the things that made this a, real, a much better picture was he was still shooting Moonlight. And uh, John McKeown came to me and said, Bruce is ready to drop. Uh, we're filming Practical Nights. A lot of the movie is really nighttime. You can tell outdoors yeah. on the roof of the building and stuff like that. Uh, and he's shooting uh, uh, um, uh, Moonlighting in the daytime. Why don't you write more stuff for all the hostages and everything outside the building so Bruce could get some days off. So Holly's part got bigger, the asshole reporter got bigger, and the outside world had more scenes in order to give Bruce a couple of days off, but it made a more realistic, better movie. Yeah, it's interesting. It definitely, that's one of those things where an inconvenience, you would think that would hurt the film. And 
in a way, it actually helped the film because jumping around to the other characters is part of what makes the movie so fun. Because every time you cut back to McClane, yeah, you you're, like, you yeah, you're like, what's going on in the building while this dick reporter is out? You know, like, what's going on inside? Uh, one thing I, I love to ask a screenwriter, and you've had it happen several times. You write the film, often you're involved with the production of the film. It... But explain to me how it feels on that Friday or Saturday when a 48 Hours or a Commando or especially a Die Hard opens. And not only is it a smash hit, not only are people like raving about it, but in the case of Die Hard particularly, critics really loved it too. Well, on opening weekend, I'm actually going from theater to theater to see if it plays the same at every theater. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, but in this particular case, uh, the first time I saw the movie cut together uh, was uh, at a cut, rough cut that was uh, just for uh, the key personnel on the movie. Uh, Bruce Willis was there. His agent was there. A couple of studio executives, the editor, the director. I was there with my second wife. Uh, and uh, uh, as soon as we saw it, even though it had shot missing and when uh, Rickman falls, he's falling into the, the airbag. You can see it. We and it was a temporary track. We knew it was going to be a hit movie. It just worked like like clockwork. A couple of things that happened on that movie um, that's worth mentioning. Uh, one of the things that was bothering us as we shot the movie was that uh, that is was that Bruce and uh, and Alan Rickman uh, never came face to face. And as Joel Silver always says, he says, "Steve, these movies are hate stories. In a love story, the boy and the girl have a cute meet, they have a few dates, and then they get married." In a hate movie, the hero and the villain fall in hate, they meet cute, they fall in hate, they have a couple of dates where they almost kill each other, and one kills the other. But in this case, we could not figure out how to get them together, because if they got together, Bruce would be dead. So one day on the set, it's like late in the afternoon, and they take a break, and they have craft service, the little wagon with donuts and, you know, whatever coming around, and they have some sandwiches coming around. And someone says to Alan Rickman, apropos of nothing, say, Alan, uh, a lot of the British actors do an American accent. Do you do an American accent? And he said, well, I don't know if I do an American accent per se, but I do like, you know, a California one. So everyone laughs. So I go, oh, my God, that's it. And I run over and I grab Larry Gordon, Joel Silver and McKiernan and I drag them over and say, do that again. He does that again. Everybody laughs. And they go, so what? I said, so what? Now Bruce can meet him. He only hears him as this voice on the radio, right? But now uh -huh. he, can meet, he can meet him and he can mindfuck him, pretend to be a hostage. Yep. So John McTiernan, who is a meticulous planner, uh, he like goes, no, 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 it's not going to work. He saw him kill Takagi. Mm -hmm. So the air goes out. I go, oh, oh. Well, wait a minute. Did you shoot that yet? And he turns to the first AD and says, when did we shoot that? He says, we shoot that tomorrow. And I said, is there a way you can shoot that scene that he doesn't see? He says, let's go over and look at the set. So they walk over to the set, which is already ready. It says hot set. It's got tape around it, like a crime scene. And John, you know, does the thing with his hands, you know, like, like, you know, like Spielberg to make a frame. And he walks around and says, okay, if you move this big conference table over here, he can hide. And it has, it has like one leg at each end, like, a, like it's a wall, the leg. It's right, not right, right. like a stick leg. I, I can make it work out. There's a partition that would block it. So right away, the crew start to start to, no, 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 don't do it yet. Steve, bring me the scene by the end of the day, and then I'll decide. So they threw somebody out of the nearest office, and they give me a typewriter for a second. I don't know what to do. I'm on a computer so long. I'm like making typos. Like, you know, oh, I have to the carriage return. So I wrote the scene. I brought it back, and they said, okay, tomorrow we're going to shoot the Dakagi scene so that this business works. But, but the next question is, how does he know he's a terrorist? 
everybody, whenever I do a seminar, people go, how does he know? And people say, oh, he just has a sixth sense of a police officer. And other people say, well, the gun weighs different with the click, without the clip, except that makes no sense. He's already given it to him. So do you guys know how he knows? Well, uh, he, no, uh, no, I, off the top of my head, no. Okay, everybody has a theory. Other people say it's because he says, who are you? And he says, uh, Clay, Bill Clay. And that's the name on the wall. And that proves it because he was so smart he knew uh, he picked the name off the wall, and Bruce knew that a bad guy would, would only bad. But that makes no sense. The real guy would say my name's on right. the wall. Here's the explanation, and it's extremely complicated. Has huge ramifications. <laughs> As we're making this movie, we put this movie together so quickly that we never really figured out the full explanation of how the bad guys were going to get away, because the helicopter request was bullshit. So now we're literally like like 10 days away from finishing the movie, and we say we have to explain more how they were going to get away. The whole building is surrounded by police. They're not using the helicopter. What is the plan? So finally I said, listen, I did this on a TV movie that nobody saw. It only aired once called The Spirit, based on a comic book, right? which was so over the top that the villain was so evil, she was going to blow up a children's hospital, and she was going to escape in a fake ambulance. Why don't we do the same thing here? And they go, great, that's it, fantastic. And they go down, and I immediately go, go and I write a wet, write, you know, rewrite a scene that was already there where, where uh, uh, Argyle jumped the last guy, but we added the thing where he pulls the ambulance out of the, out of the vehicle. You know the scene, right? And that's right. where the audience understands that was their plan. You don't have to have dialogue. You see it. You get it. Now we have the first cut of the movie, which I told you about, right? But there was one moment that was not so wonderful. When they all get off the truck in the beginning of the movie, all the villains get off the truck, that dramatic shot of Alan Rickman walking forward and they, oh, the, on the loading dock, and then they're walking inside the building. As shot, as written, they actually paused for a moment on the loading dock, and Alan Rickman said in German, synchronize your watches, and the camera went up like a Hitchcock, up a little higher, and all of the terrorists put their arms out, and they all clicked their watch to be in sync, and they all had the same tag your watch. Aha! Uh-huh. Now, when Bruce kills the first guy, he falls down the steps and he realizes he's dead. He broke his neck. He searches the guy. You see, he looks at his clothes and his ID a little strangely. Yep. He takes the cigarettes. He says, these are very bad for you. And he looks around and he steals. It's always a laugh because he's a cop. And he looks around like, will somebody see him steal the cigarettes? And then he looks at the watch, which is another laugh. Like, is he going to steal the watch? Later on, he has dialogue. He says, these guys, I think they're professionals. They have good IDs. Their clothes have no labels. Remember, he said, hey, he could be a fucking bartender in there, which is a joke about Bruce Willis, who uh-huh. actually a bartender we discovered. As he searches each guy, he notices they all have the same watch. And in fact, when he has the line with Dwayne Robinson, he says, their IDs are the best I've ever seen. All the labels are cut out of the clothing, so we don't know where they came from. And they all have the same watch. This is a command a professional operation. Why is the watch not in the movie? Here's why. When we did that scene where they all get off and they synchronize your watches, we had not thought about the ambulance escape yet. So when they stand there and he says synchronize their watches, if you look behind them, you see an empty truck. Oh, no ambulance. So once we saw that, he said, uh-oh, we're in trouble. John McTiernan says to the editor, you got to get this. The minute, the, the, at the earliest opportunity, you got to get the scissors in there. So we can't see the truck is empty. You, you got to lose the truck, which means you lose the dialogue. You, so you lose the synchronizing the watch thing. When he killed each guy, he noticed they all had the same watch. But now we cut out that moment where he notices the same watch on every dead guy except the first one where it works as a 
Chuck, I want to thank you so much. Uh, we have had some great guests on the show. We celebrate the 1980s. And as far as action films of the 1980s go, our fans, our listeners, owe you a debt of thanks, not just for 48 Hours and Commando and, uh, and of course, Die Hard. Thank you, everybody who was out there listening. Follow Stephen E. D'Souza on Twitter and tell him how much you love his films. Thank you again, Stephen. We really appreciate it. Uh, you're welcome. You're welcome. And go Flyers. <laughs>